It really is a privilege for me to, um, to be here. It is seldom the case that I can sing that chorus that we sang earlier, Mighty to Save, without being reminded of how God used that particular song uh, to bring a member of my family to faith in Christ. At a moment of weakness and desperation, that song ministered deeply to that individual, and they said, I need this mighty God to save me. And so that song has always been important in um, our family. And so it reminded me again this morning of how good and merciful Jesus really is to each one of us. Um, We've been prayed for. If you have a Bible this morning, you can go to the book of Acts chapter 16 and we'll be there for our time together inside of the Word. Um, A little bit of what I'm going to share with you is a part of the story that I've been sharing Uh, since uh, Chris and I relocated to Florida nearly two years ago. Uh, In that time, uh, I've been going to different congregations that are a part of Florida and the Bahamas. Uh, We have four congregations in the Bahamas, sharing not only a little bit of our story, but more than that, how God's mercy and his sovereignty has brought us to the place where we find ourselves today And anytime you tell your own story, you realize there are people who have their story of God's mercy and sovereignty in the circumstances of life. Um, And so the picture that you're seeing there is a picture of our family. I wish my entire family could be here today. Some of them, uh, as they remind me, have lives of their own. They can't just follow their dad around all their lives. Um, But in the blue dress is my wife, Christina. We've been married this May, I think it will be 37 years. If she were here, she'd give me the nod. Um, And uh, we are holding our two grandchildren. She's holding the oldest, Madeline, and I'm holding Abigail. And they belong to, on the other side, uh, our daughter-in-law who's in the dark dress and standing next to our son, Jordan. That's Ashley and Jordan. Jordan's an Alliance pastor on staff at an Alliance church in Tallahassee. In fact, he's preaching this morning. So I texted him this morning, let him know I would be uh, uh, praying for him. Uh, Ashley and uh, Jordan met at Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina, where they were both a part of the worship team. And today, June, uh, Jordan does student ministry and worship, and that's where they are. Uh, Ashley's family emigrated here from Iraq. She's a thir- third generation Uh, emigrated here. Her grandfather actually was a physician, or uh, I believe he's retired now. He lives in all places, Jacksonville, Florida. And so I've met him. Uh, He's still in great health, well into his 80s, and still consults with patients as well. On the uh, far side in the white dress is our oldest. uh, That is Lauren and her husband, Matt. Matt's family emigrated here from Argentina. Uh, They met uh, as a part of the church that we used to pastor in Foxborough, Massachusetts. If that sounds familiar to you, you know that's because uh, Foxborough is home to the NFL's greatest franchise, the New England Patriots. (laughs) Brian, I thought you said there would be Christian people here this morning. (laughs) So... um, So I pastored a church there for about 11 years. We've lived in Massachusetts before moving here for 24 years. 
and initially moved there to pastor a church. Matt's dad was one of the elders of the congregation that I pastored. They met in high school. I hired Matt to be Lauren's math tutor, and one day my wife comes out and says to me in the kitchen, you know what's happening in the dining room, don't you? And I said, yeah, they're sitting at the table, and he's teaching her math. She goes, you're so naive. (laughs) And um, they've now been married, I think, 10 or 11 years. They live in downtown Chicago. Um, And I said, those are our two grandchildren. Standing right next to me in the khakis is our son, Christian. He's our youngest. Christian is a big part of our story. Christian is profoundly autistic. He lives in a residential facility in Massachusetts. In fact, that's why mom's not here today, because she goes back and forth still to care for him. Um, And she's up there right now spending some time with him. Yesterday, they had a great day at the zoo It was the first day she said the sun's come out this year in Massachusetts. So they went to the zoo, had a great time. And uh, so she went to the church where I used to pastor. And uh, she was there this morning worshiping. And she'll see Christian this afternoon. She's with me a couple of Sundays a month right now because she's still with him. Uh, Probably, to be honest with you, being Christian's parents is the thing that's taught us more about the grace of God than almost anything else in all of life. We've seen the mercy of God. I show you that picture not only to introduce you to my family uh, and to prove that I actually have a family, um, but really because it more than anything else tells the story of God's leading in my life. That's not the picture I envisioned when I was uh, planning to leave my house as a young person and go off into the future that I anticipated as an adult. I come from a very small town in upstate New York. It's a farming community. There were less than 500 people in the town. As Brian said, I grew up in a trailer because I come from an incredibly poor family. Um, It's a large family on both my mother's and my father's side. Uh, Five uncles on each side of the five, nine served in the U.S. military, and so I did what all my uncles did. I enlisted in the U.S. military, and so uh, that's back when they had the buddy system. I found a buddy that wanted to go in the military. We enlisted in the buddy system, and so that's what I was going to do, graduate from high school and go into the U.S. military, and then I was going to move back to that town, buy some small little house or maybe uh, a fancy double wide if I could afford that. I was going to buy a pickup truck because that's what I really wanted. I raced motorcycles during high school. I was going to buy the fastest motorcycle and find the prettiest girl I could find and marry her. And then I was going to work at the plant where all of my family members worked. That was the plan that I had with my life. And so as a senior in high school, I had done enough work to get out of school early. And so I got a part-time job. And if you didn't want to work on the farm, there were only a couple of other options. Eight miles over the hill, there was a a little bit larger town, and that town had both a Pizza Hut and a McDonald's. And so I got a part-time job in the morning before school at McDonald's. I went to school, and in the evening I had a part-time job at Pizza Hut. And I was saving up enough money so that when I finally got in the U.S. military, I could buy a truck and life would be sort of set uh, on the course that I anticipated. The only problem was, is one day as I was flipping burgers, I looked from the grill over to the fry station, and I saw this really cute girl. And I thought to myself, I have got to meet her. She is the cutest girl that I have met to date. And she was just pleasant. 
She was always smiling. She was so kind. And so I took my break when she was taking her break. And I would share my nuggets with her. And eventually, I mustered up enough courage to ask her to go on a date. Not a lot of options in that area. You could go to the drive-in theater. You could go roller skating. So I said to her, would you like to go to dinner and roller skating? And she thought for a moment, and she said, okay, um, where would we go to dinner? And I said, well, I work at Pizza Hut, so I get a discount. Why don't we get a pizza, and then we'll go roller skating? And that's exactly what we did. The truth of the matter is, is I was really taken with her. I was really taken with her. And so over the next few weeks, I would ask her out again and again to go on a date. Until finally one day, I went to visit her at her house, and we went for this long walk out in a meadow, and we were sitting uh, alongside this stream or this creek where I come from, and we were sitting there, and I mustered up enough courage to ask her, hey, would you like to be my girlfriend? Every time I talk like that, my kids cringe. They said, Dad, nobody talks like that anymore. I said, well, I can tell you what I really asked her. I said, do you want to go steady? They're like, Dad, don't talk like that. It shows how old you are. And in whatever language I could, I put the question out to her, and I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, really, the truth of the matter is, is there really couldn't be a future for you and I. And I'm 18 years old. What do you do when you're sitting next to a pretty girl out in a meadow next to the stream? You ask her to be your girlfriend, and she turns you down. And I don't really know what to do. And I say to her, why? I think you like me. I like you. Um, how come there could be no future for us? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, because the most important thing in my life is not the most important thing in your life. And I said, well, it can be. Just tell me what it is. <laughs> and she said, well, it's actually not a thing. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, I didn't really know what to do with that because I hadn't grown up in the church. The only time I'd ever used or heard the name Jesus is when I had heard it used in vain. I didn't know who Jesus was. I mean, I had this vague idea. When I'd visit my grandparents on a weekend, they would go to the United Methodist Church where my grandfather would play the organ and my grandmother was the president of the Women's Auxiliary Guild, which I don't even know what that is. And they would drag me along, and they had a little suit in their closet that they reserved for me that they would dress me up in, and then I would have to put it back in their closet. So when I was with them on a weekend and I went to church, I would look appropriate. But that church never told them about the person of Jesus. It never really preached the gospel. And so I didn't really know much about the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we walked back that day out of that meadow, and I uh, would just figured, well, man, this is sort of coming to an unceremonious end here, uh, to which Chris, who, uh, if you haven't figured out yet now, uh, eventually would become my wife, she said to me, she said, listen, if you would like to learn more about Jesus, uh, you could come to church with me. And going to church just seemed like an incredibly daunting thing. I mean, walking through the doors of this building, if you've never done it before, it's one of the most intimidating experiences you can have, especially if it's on Sunday morning at 1030. Right? I mean, you don't know what to expect when you come inside a place like this. And I didn't know, but because I really wanted to be with her, um, 
And something inside me was strangely drawn to this notion of Jesus that she had talked to me about. I decided I would go. And so I showed up on Sunday morning at Springville Gospel Church, a church that had in it probably about as many people as are seated in this two sections right here. Just a small country church out on the side of a country road in the middle of nowhere. You can't get there from here. And I walked in and I sat down and then Chris would introduce me to the pastor who I would quickly learn was actually her father. The whole thing seemed a little bit like a conspiracy, to be totally honest with you. But I sat there and I listened. And in the coming weeks, not every Sunday, but every so often, I would make my way back to that church because something about what he had to say and what he said God had to offer seemed, it seemed attractive to me. Well, I told you I enlisted in the military, and so I went off from a military physical. I'd played basketball, football, and baseball. I was a high school athlete. I was in good shape physically. I went for my physical and I promptly failed the military physical and was disqualified from entry into the U.S. military service. I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. I mean, most of the kids where I come from didn't go to college, and so that wasn't even a notion. I went to the military, I'd work in the plant, I'd buy a house, I'd marry a pretty girl, I'd have a pickup truck, and life would be what it was for all the members of my family. And so I went back uh, home, and I didn't know what to do. It was about this time that Chris was headed back to a college. She went to a small liberal arts college located on the Hudson River, known as Nyack College. And her dad also had gone to a small little college on the Hudson River known as Nyack College, then Nyack Missionary Training Institute. And so one day he says to me, hey, listen, you seem to really like Chris. I'm wondering if you'd like to ride with me as I take her back to college. It's about a three and a half hour drive. And I thought to myself, well, three and a half hours more with Chris sounds like a really attractive prospect. But three and a half hours alone in the car with her dad on the way home seems a bit daunting. <laughs> but because I really wanted to be with Chris and I wanted to see where she would be, and this was before the advent of cell phones and the internet and texting, I thought, well, I can write her letters and I can even call her. She told me there's a phone in the dorm hallway you can call and if somebody else picks up you can ask them to knock on my door maybe I'll be there and I said well I really want to see where she's at and so I did I took him up on his offer we rode and Chris and I sat in the back seat like a couple of stiffs because her dad was driving the car and we dropped her off and then we drove back and I sat in the front on that ride home I began asking him questions about the person of Jesus that he had been preaching about on these Sunday mornings I have no idea at that time where these questions were coming from. But now I look back and I know that that was the Holy Spirit working on my mind and my heart and God was inclining me favorably toward the message of the gospel that I'd been hearing. It doesn't matter whether that's in central Mexico, like on the video that we'd heard, or whether that was somewhere here in Jacksonville, maybe for you, or whether it was for me in the rural areas of upstate New York. As we came to the end of that uh, drive, we sat in the driveway, and he looked at me and he said, Tom, I think Jesus is drawing you to acknowledge his, uh, you know, his lordship in, in your life and that you'd have to receive him as your savior, repent of your sins, and let him be master the rest of your days. And I said, I actually think you're right. What should I do about that? And he said, you should pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life and to, to lead you every day from this day forward. 
I said, well, I'd like to do that. And he said, well, then pray and ask him to do that. I said, out loud in front of you? He goes, yes. I said, I've never prayed in my life. <laughs> but I mustered some crude words that I knew were sincerely echoed from the depth of my heart. And I can only tell you at that moment, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit came into my life. I sensed his presence. I got out of that car that day. I went into an empty house. And I knew I had this assurance. I'm never going to die. I've been given the gift of eternal life. It has come from heaven. And that day changed the trajectory of my life, right? I mean, it just changed everything. It erased a lot about the past. And it just sort of began to unfold the future I could never have anticipated. I tell you that story because if we had time this morning, you could rehearse your own. Where you would see God in his infinite mercy and wisdom, orchestrating the circumstances of your life to accomplish whatever he chooses to accomplish in using you for his glory and purposes. Now the problem with that is that God doesn't always ask your permission beforehand as to whether or not you think what he's about to do is a good idea. Have you noticed this? about God. I, I became an incredibly passionate evangelist after I uh, came to know Christ as a senior in high school at the age of 18. Today I can tell you that most of my family and many of my friends have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Just the mercy of God, right? I have no other explanation but that, the mercy of God. But it began with God messing with the circumstances and the plan that I had for my life. He does the same for you. One of the people that I shared the gospel with was a very close friend in high school, and I gave him a Bible as Chris's dad had given to me. I asked him to do what I had been told to do, read the gospel of John. I didn't know at that time why I was telling him to read the gospel of John. Somebody just told me to read the gospel of John, so I told him to read the gospel of John. Now I know why you read John. As much as any place in all of the Holy Bible, the Gospel of John discloses who is the person of Jesus and what's he all about. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you want to know who he really is and what he's all about. And after my friend read that part of the Bible, we got back together and I said to him, Rich, please tell me, what, what do you think? And he meant no sacrilege or disrespect whatsoever. He said this to me, I'll never forget, he said, I've read enough of the Bible to know that I would have a problem with God. And I said, well, do tell, because I'm about to follow him for the rest of my life, and if there's a problem with God, I would want to know what it is. And this is what he said. The problem with God, it seems to me, as I read the Bible, is that he thinks he's God. <laughs> I'll never forget what I said to him. It seems to me like you're off to a great start. I mean, fundamentally, isn't that really where it starts and it stops? He's God. And he gets the privilege of orchestrating the circumstances of history, humanity, and the particulars of your life and mine to achieve whatever ends he so desires. That's what he does. And the great comfort that you and I have is that when he messes with the circumstances of your life or mine, is that we know in the end it's okay because God only does in the end what is ultimately 
for your good, the sake of society, and the glory of his name. God only does, in the end, what is for your good, the sake of society, and the glory of his name. John Dahlberg used to say that all power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And history is littered with tyrants who've lived up to those words. But with God, absolute power is absolutely not a problem because at his core, he is only and always has been or ever will be good. And so he's entrusted with what we refer to as sovereignty, right? Providence. And you and I live beneath it. And while we may on occasion question or even chafe at the circumstances of life that we have no explanation for but God, ultimately we cooperate with them because we know this about God. He is good, he is merciful, he is all-knowing, and he does nothing in the end that isn't in the end for my good, the sake of society, and the glory of his name. If there was ever a place in all of Holy Scripture where the plans of humanity and the sovereignty of God intersect and sovereignty wins the day, if you will, it's the 16th chapter of Acts. Let me give you a little context and then you can turn there in a moment. Inside this chapter, you find the Apostle Paul, who you know authors most of the New Testament, right? I mean, he used to be called Saul. He has a profound experience of coming to know Jesus. He hears the voice of the Lord from heaven. He experiences a name change. He goes from Saul to Paul. He goes from being a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church. He goes from giving consent to the murder of Christians to trying to convert people to Christianity. Talk about a change of events. Talk about a change of plans. Well, one of the things that God says to Paul is that in his lifetime, he's going to send him on three extended journeys. We call those the missionary journeys of Paul. And if you have one of the old style Bibles, you can go to the back and there'll be maps in there that sort of outline the missionary journeys of Paul. If you go to the second of these journeys, you'll find that Paul is in the midst of this journey number two. And he, when you get to the 16th chapter of Acts, He's traveling up to the middle of this very large continental landmass that is modern-day Turkey. Today, it is the country of Turkey. In the Bible, it's known as Phrygia. Um, and so he's on this trip, and he's brought three friends with him. A fellow by the name of Luke, another one by the name of Silas, and a young protege who Paul is developing to be a pastor, a young guy by the name of Timothy. He's told all of them, here's the plan. I want to go through the middle of this place. We'll leave Jerusalem. When we get to the top of Phrygia, we're going to turn left, and we're ultimately going to go west over to Spain. Along the way, we're going to stop at all these centers of commerce and trade, these little towns, and we're going to preach the gospel and tell people about Jesus. And wherever there's responsiveness, we'll stay there for a little while. We'll get a group of people together. We'll disciple them. We'll create a community of faith. We'll call that the church. We'll plant it there inside that little uh, township and uh, we know that they'll stay there and they'll continue to witness to other people who live in the area and the church will grow and more people will hear about Jesus. And his three buddies say to him, sounds like a great plan. 
And so they go to the AAA office. This is long before the advent of GPS. They get their trip tick, and it seems like it makes sense to everybody. They unroll the scroll. Uh, they look at the map, and off they go. And they get to the top of Phrygia, where it will require this westward or left-hand turn, and they're going to make their way to Spain. And so far, so good. Everyone's on board. They're making nice progress. The plan makes sense. And so everybody's just going along well, if you will. There's only one problem that becomes rather quickly apparent. For whatever reason, when they get to the point where they have to go west, God lets them know that he's not inclined to cooperate with their plan any longer. Now, if you don't think that's the case, you can go to the 16th chapter of Acts, and you can go to verse 6, and here's what it reads. Now, Paul and his companions, those three fellows I'd mentioned by name, who had traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, were now having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, it doesn't get much more plain than that, does it? Uh, God has, by his Holy Spirit, someone with whom Paul is immensely familiar, is being shown from heaven that the Lord is not going to allow them to go over there and to preach the gospel in the places where they had planned to do so. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you were motivated for all of the right reasons to do something that you thought was really good, only to discover that for whatever reason, God would not allow you to do so? I'm not talking about, you know, you're going to leave here today and you want to go to this restaurant or to that one for, for dinner. I mean, you don't have to do that because we have food here today, but, but not that kind of decision. This is the one where, you know, it's the midst of COVID and you've got a friend or a family member on the West Coast who's sick and you want desperately to go be by their bedside. And for whatever reason, circumstances just wouldn't allow you to get there. Or one of your kids is hurting or a parent has been suffering with cancer and you want to be there. Or maybe it, it wasn't someone that you needed to be with. Maybe it was just some set of circumstances that seemed an ideal fit for you in life. That's the job of your dreams in the place where you've always wanted to live. You've talked about it to others. They say it's a great idea. If the opportunity ever presents itself, you should take advantage of it. You've prayed about it. You've consulted with people. And everyone says, it makes sense to me. You should go do it. And you want with all of your heart to do so. But you have this profound sense that for whatever reason, God is not going to allow it to happen. Ever been there? If you haven't been, you probably will be sooner or later. 
every once in a while I get the privilege of speaking to a group of young people and I say to the kids in the room, listen, if you've never had this kind of experience with God, buckle up because you will sooner or later. I mean, one of the things you will discover about God is he sometimes messes with the circumstances of your life and he feels no obligation to come to you beforehand and ask if you think this is going to be okay. Nor does he feel obligated to come afterward and explain himself. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is I'm standing here right now at this moment, in part because God orchestrated circumstances in our life I could never have anticipated. Never. I, I didn't ask for them. When they came, I said, God, if your will is apparent and it's unfolding, I'll follow your path. But I could never have anticipated this. In fact, in case you didn't know God, I had other plans for my life during this next season. It was over there. I, I think I'd mentioned this to you. Um, I wonder on occasion if God doesn't snicker when we share some of our plans, but that's exactly what happens. And so Paul, who knows enough not to force his way in a direction that God's blocking, pauses for a moment, and he thinks to himself, well, it makes no sense to go back the way we came. I can't go left here. You'll see in a moment, if he presses his way forward, ultimately, they'll walk into a large body of water and drown. There's only one option that remains, it seems. We'll go east or turn right here. We'll make it to Spain. It's just the long way around. And so he says to his friends, okay, guys, I guess that's what we're going to do after all. I thought we were going left. We're going to go right. And everybody nods their heads and says, well, let's go. There's only one problem. For whatever reason, God has decided he will neither cooperate with plan B. Let me ask you again. Have you ever found yourself here? Have you found yourself in a set of circumstances where you really don't know what to do? The job that you had has gone away. The one that you thought you could find, you cannot. The people you thought would be close to you are nowhere to be found. The place that you thought you might live and all the circumstances that would converge to make life everything you hoped it would be and prayed and you just thought God would do his part, which is to work out all the details of life to make it what you hoped it might be, are not coming to fruition in the manner that you had hoped or even prayed. And if you don't believe me, that God has decided here he will neither cooperate with plan B. Look at verse 7. It's our last verse of the day. And when they came to the border of Mysia, that's that right-hand turn, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. You don't get much more plain than that, do you? The Holy Spirit blocks it here, and then you try to go over here, and God says, no, go there either. Now, what do you do when you find yourself in circumstances like that in life? <laughs> you do. You pray. But do you know what Paul did? Literally. Paul went to bed. Literally, he went to bed. Sometimes a nap is the answer, right? I mean, he, right? He goes to bed. And while he sleeps, God gives him a dream. Listen, I've been following Jesus now for 40 years. I can probably count on these two hands, maybe a little more, 
where I knew that I was either having a dream or I was awakened from a dream that I knew was clearly from God. I've had a lot more dreams than that. That was the result of eating too much pizza before I went to bed. But there have been occasions where I knew this dream was God speaking to me. He awakened me in the night and told me to go hover over one of my children and to pray for them. He spoke to me and I woke in the morning and I said to my wife, God spoke to me in a dream. It was clear, it was compelling. I know it was him. It wasn't me. The psalmist said, two chapters before the psalm that was read for you this morning in Psalm 121, that God sometimes speaks to you in a dream because God never falls asleep. And aren't you glad that he doesn't? Neither does he not fall asleep, but he never even slumbers. And the reason that he doesn't sleep and he doesn't slumber is so that he can watch over every step you take so that you will not slip. And the other reason that God speaks to you and me in a dream is sometimes it's the only time he can get your undivided attention. It's the only time you put your iPhone down. It's the only time you stop listening to iTunes or you turn off the television. And every once in a while, God has something so profound to say that he wants your undivided attention. And in this dream, he says to Paul, hey! And he puts a man on the other side of that seashore from that vast body of water that stands before them. And that man calls across those waves and says, why don't you come over here and help us? And Paul wakes up in the morning and says to his friends, I don't know what awaits us over there, but book passage on the first ship you can find. We're going over there to the area that is modern-day Greece or Europe that's little talked about in the Bible, and that's exactly where they go. And they land on an island. They sense they're not supposed to stay there. They go to a port town. They sense they're not supposed to stay there until finally they make their way to a small Roman colony known as Philippi. Sound familiar? You've got an entire New Testament book known as Philippians. Philippians and that little Roman colony, in Paul's mind, become ultimately known for their joy. If you want to know how to be happy in spite of your circumstances in life, study the book of Philippians. You'll find the pathway to joy. Well, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy go to Philippi, and they wake up on the day of prayer, there's no church and no synagogue. And so they do what people would do in that day. They would go down to the water's edge for the day of prayer, and there they find a woman who sells high-end purple cloth. Her name is Lydia. The Bible says she's a God-fearing woman, but she's never heard about Jesus. Right? I mean, think about it. There are spiritual people all over the world who don't really know that what they're missing and looking for and longing for is actually the person of Jesus. Right? I was one of those people as a high school senior. I didn't know this was a prayer, but I would ride that motorcycle to the top of that mountain, look out over that valley where I lived, and think to myself, there has to be more to life than this. If you're up there, I hope that you're listening, I'd say. It would sound like a sacrilegious prayer, but it was a genuine expression, a plea, a cry of the heart. There has to be more to life than what I'd experienced so far. Well, Paul runs into Lydia. He tells her, there is more to life. And he fills in the blank, tells her about Jesus. She comes to faith. Her whole family comes to faith in Jesus, and they're all baptized. And I want to say, yay, God. 
If that's the result of you interrupting my plans and taking me away from what I wanted to do to what you want to do with my life, then you lead on. She takes them back to her home, brings their friends, other family members, other people come to faith. A church springs up right there in that small Roman colony in Lydia's house. Right there, there's a church. Paul and Silas think to themselves, well, if they're eager and listening, let's just stay right here. The Holy Spirit seems to be doing something. They go into the marketplace and they begin telling anyone and everyone who's within earshot, the person that you're looking for is Jesus. The person you long for is Jesus. And other people are coming to faith. And then there's this slave girl who is a fortune teller, who says the right things out loud. You should listen to these two guys. They're telling you about the most high God and the way to be saved. She's a fortune teller, a medium. And the way she knows what's going to happen in somebody's life in the future is because she's possessed by a demonic spirit. I mean, this young girl's got it really bad. She's owned by a couple of earthly masters and she's possessed by a demonic spirit. Talk about being in a host of trouble. And while what she says is true, it's apparently a distraction. And when Paul can take it no longer, one day he turns and he says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And in an instant, she's delivered from that demonic spirit. And I want to say, yay, God. If that's what I can expect when you lead and I follow your lead, a profound demonstration of the Spirit's power in my midst, then you lead on. If that's what I can expect, then God, you lead. I'll follow. Because I could never have orchestrated these circumstances. I couldn't have put this plan together. And certainly that's power that's beyond me. You lead. I'll follow. There's only one problem. Her owners, remember, she's owned, not just by a demonic spirit, but by some earthly masters, realize they've lost their revenue stream. Because who wants to go to a fortune teller who can't tell you the future? <laughs> and so they accuse Paul and Silas of subverting Roman customs, have them dragged into the marketplace, beaten within an inch of their life, and chained in the inner recesses of a Roman dungeon. And left there, through the watch of the night, likely, if they're fortunate enough to survive till the morning, to be beaten again the next day, and probably not to survive much longer. And that's where you find this story. Maybe you can read it for yourself this afternoon. Go to the rest of the story, if you will, in the 16th chapter of Acts. And in my mind, this story closes something like this with two evangelists chained in that Roman dungeon. Shortly before the pandemic, my wife and I were in this part of the world. We weren't in this particular dungeon, but we were in an excavated Roman dungeon, and we could still see driven into the wall up there iron spikes that would hold chains that would shackle prisoners like Paul and Silas in place. And the Bible says... Through the watch of the night, the evangelists are awake and they're praying. And again, in my mind, it goes something like this. Silas, are you okay over there? 
yeah, Paul. I'm okay. You're still praying, aren't you? Yeah, Paul, I'm praying. Well, don't stop because you know he's right here with us, don't you? Yeah, I know he's here. I sense his presence. Keep praying, Silas. We may see him very soon. Is there anything else I can do for you, Silas? I mean, our options, after all, are kind of limited here. Yeah, there is. There's one thing. What is it? I'd like to sing. Would you join me, Paul? Sing, you say, you'd like to sing in our circumstances? Yes, Paul, I'd like to sing, and I don't want to just sing any old song. I'd like to sing his praise. And the Bible tells us that those two evangelists begin to sing aloud so that the jailer can hear them and the other prisoners can hear them until finally one of them says, Hey, did you feel that? And they begin to, to sing aloud and they continue to sing through the watch of the night until finally someone says, I think I did feel that. And another says, I felt it too. And you read the story for yourself. It's a true story. And you'll find the inhabitants of this dungeon in heaven one day when you show up. The Bible says that the walls of that dungeon begin to shake and the floor begins to move. And so violently still that eventually everybody's chains fall down. All of their shackles come loose and in an instant they're all set free and those iron gates to that dungeon swing wide open and everyone is free. And I want to say one more time, yay God, if that's the result of you leading, me following, and you doing what I could never see done on my own, then you lead, I'll follow. I'll serve you until I see you. I will follow your lead because it's better than my own way. And the Bible says this, that the jailer, who only hours before was no doubt beating and mocking them and telling them they'd met their demise, realizes that it means his head because if just one of them has escaped, he will have to pay with his life. He calls for his sword. He's about to fall on it. And when Paul sees it, he says, don't do it. We are all still here. And the jailer calls for the dungeon to be lit. He counts every one of them and not a single person is missing. They've all stayed there. And the jailer falls down before the evangelist that he'd been beating and mocking only hours before and asks this question, O men of God, what must I do to be saved? 
And Paul gives that ancient man the same answer we give to modern people. It's this simple. If you will genuinely trust Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sins, if you will take him as master of your life, if you will let him lead you until the day you die or he appears in the sky, if you will genuinely do that, you will be saved. And he comes to faith. You know the story. He takes him home. He wakes his wife, his whole family, his kids. They all come to faith. They're baptized one more time. I want to say, yay, God. The sun comes up in the morning, and the magistrates hear what's happened. They send word to the two evangelists. Hey, would you guys just leave town quietly, and here's a little payment. Sorry we didn't do you right. Uh, just be on your way. And they said, we will leave, but what you need to know is we're Roman citizens, and you didn't afford us due process. We'll leave when we're ready to leave. And we're not leaving before we go back to find Lydia. They knock on her door in the morning and the Bible says parakaleo. They go there to encourage her. It's not encouragement like this, a little tap on the back. Hey, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's this kind of encouragement where you hold somebody by the shoulders, you look them straight in the eye, and you say to your son or your daughter, don't make this mistake. It could be devastating. It's that kind of exhortation. And they go there to exhort Lydia and all the people who had been hovering behind a locked door. And in my mind, it goes something like this when Lydia opens the door. Paul, you're alive! We've been praying all night for you. We didn't know if you would see the sun come up. We didn't know if they would come for us next. And can't you hear what he says to her? Lydia, don't you remember how we never planned to come here to begin with? We were going over there. But God in his infinite wisdom brought us right here, right to you, right now. And even though all of these things have happened that seem hard and difficult, and it seems like God may have let us or you down, here's what you need to know. He has been directing our steps all along the way. Pray for us. We're going to move on now. We know opposition awaits us wherever we go. We'll pray for you too, because one day you may have to wear the scars of your commitment to Jesus. But you stay strong in the Lord. You stay strong. Here's how this story ends, and what an ending. What an ending. If you want to know why Philippi is known as the city of joy in Philippians is the epistle of joy, I'm convinced it is because of this one reason, that two guys in their most difficult and darkest hour decided they wouldn't lament their circumstances. They would sing God's praise. And joy... Joy was embedded in that congregation from the very beginning. And listen, if joy and praise is the deliverance of ancient people, it will still be the deliverance of modern people. But here's the best of this story. Do you know the gospel actually does go west to Spain? You can trace this in the Bible and in history. The gospel actually goes west to Spain. Guess where from? Philippi. That little church becomes a missionary sending and supporting church. It sends the gospel. You can trace this to Spain. From Spain, the gospel goes to France. From France, the gospel goes to the UK. And one day, people board small, crude sailing vessels and come halfway around the world to the shores of a new America. And with everything else they bring with them, they also bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes from the eastern shore of the United States across this country. It's entirely possible you're seated here today, at least in part, because a long time ago, four guys were steered away from their plan into the plan of God, and God saw how the gospel would move to this part of the world. What 
whatever happens in this world in the future, and no one knows what's going to happen, right? Only God knows. You just make sure you're committed to the most important enterprise until the day you die, and that is the movement of the gospel all around the globe. It's the hope of humanity, and it's God's plan for the world, so when he messes with the circumstances of your life or mine, just say, okay, God, I realize you got a plan here. It makes sense to you. If on occasion you could let me in on a little bit of it, all the better. But nonetheless, if it's your spirit leading, I will follow. Father, thank you for your